This is the Inside Out Story Podcast, a place where we take you deep into the world of storytelling. Now, here are your hosts, John Booker and Jeremy Casper. Welcome to the Inside Out Story Podcast. I'm John Booker, and I'm interested in why we tell stories. And I'm Jeremy Casper, and I'm interested in the how we tell stories. Jeremy, today we're talking about one of our favorite topics. We're talking about the antagonist. Oh, yes, the bad guy. Stories. Yeah. <laughs> why, why do you think it is that the bad guy is often so much more interesting than the good guy, the, the protagonist? Well, I think that, that a lot of times that has to do with the fact that they actually have a, a really interesting perspective on the story. And it's oftentimes a perspective that ultimately proves to be broken and flawed, but it's captivating, it's fascinating, and to a certain degree, I think it oftentimes has elements and characteristics of it that, that we relate to. So I think that's, that's just an initial thing that can draw us to, to, uh, to the bad guys in stories, or, or bad girls, so we don't <laughs> want to be sexist here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny because I, I think back, the history of American film and American storytelling in film. And, you know, the, the first American film, really, that told a story was The Great Train Robbery. And when you think about it, The Great Train Robbery is really not a good guy in yeah. that story. It's really the, the story of these bandits, these train robbers. Um, and, you know, we, we seem to have had a fascination, at least in this country, um, with people who choose to buck the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's because of how our country was founded or, or any variety of reasons. But we seem to have always had a fascination in this country in our storytelling with people who have chosen an alternate way of, right. of dealing with uh, their problems and an alternate way of dealing with society. Absolutely. And, and I think, too, also the, the antagonist is the problem in a film. Mm. And, you know, a story, oftentimes, John, will tell our students that, you know, a, a simple story is a character facing a problem while, you know, facing some sort of, sort of opposition, trying to solve a problem while facing some sort of opposition. Uh, a story is not a character just trying to solve a problem. That's boring. Uh, what makes a story a story is the opposition component of, of the whole um, uh, solution, the whole factor. And so when you don't have that element, you don't have a story. And so it's really the antagonist. That's the thing that gives us the story. Yeah, I, it's funny you say that because you and I have both seen lots of scripts. We've seen lots of stories that actually lacked an antagonist or lacked any sort of antagonistic uh, force. Um, These stories that are sort of slice of life, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, stories just about characters just kind of living their life and, you know, there's no one opposing anything or any sort of conflict. Those stories certainly have a place. Sure. They're, they're, They're not the sort of stories that uh, are going to you know be at the top of the box office necessarily, uh, but those stories uh, do have a place, and probably on a future podcast we'll talk about those sorts of stories. Um, with those sorts of stories, I do think that writers need to earn the right to tell those sorts of stories. I don't think they're for every writer, and I think they are the domain of mature writers um, that 
have learned the rules before they learn to break them. And so especially for new writers uh, starting out, learn to tell stories with antagonists, with antagonistic forces, and then you can move on to more advanced forms of storytelling. Yeah, I would agree, John. And and I would also add, too, that you know, depending on the length of your, your film, too, um, that oftentimes can determine what you can get away with in terms of your antagonist. Uh, for example, I have seen some really beautiful short films uh, that that don't have an actual embodied antagonist in the story, but there still is some central opposition that the main characters it has to overcome, and it might come from the environment. And in a short film, you might be able to get away with that for a little bit. But the longer your narrative, uh, the more and more we're really going to want to see that opposition come from an actual human being. And to that point, I would even say. I think, you know, stories have a bigger emotional punch uh, when we see an actual human being opposing someone else or working against someone else. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not that you don't feel emotion in stories that are sort of slice of life stories, but I, I don't think they're meant to pack the emotional journey uh, that a story that's about a protagonistic force and an antagonistic force uh, does. So... For this episode, we're really concentrating on stories that have a very clear antagonist, a very clear antagonistic force. Uh, We will talk over the course of the podcast about stories where the antagonistic force is not necessarily a human being. Uh, Sometimes, you know, it's a a, a, a weather um, phenomenon or an animal like in Jaws. Uh, or a monster, or a um, a ghost, but for the most part, um, even in stories such as those, the antagonistic force takes on this human persona, or, or has humanistic qualities, and so I think most of what we're talking about uh, when we talk about human antagonists um, can still greatly be of help to writers who are telling stories where the antagonistic force is something like uh, a tornado or an iceberg or a ghost. Um, I don't know. No? Would yeah, you agree? No, I completely agree. And I think one of the things that you will um, notice, too, in, in, in man versus nature kinds of stories um, Almost always, if the central antagonist is not a human being, then typically there are very strong secondary antagonists in the story. Mm. Uh, So I I think that um, regardless of the type of story you're telling, um, even if the the main central bad guy in the story is a genetically engineered dinosaur, (laughs) it's still going to help you in your story writing if you've got some sort of Dennis Nedry character still in the film (laughs) who's causing everything to go awry. What, what about like a Jaws? What, uh, you know, the central antagonistic force is the shark. Mm-hmm. What, what, what? Yeah, that's, you've got Chief Brody in that film. Um, and it's, it, it, as we've talked about many times in this podcast, a really excellent, excellent film. Um, a shark, though, can't really have moral arguments. You know, they can't really intentionally plot against the main character, which is what a good antagonist should do, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about here in a little bit. Um, but in that case, if you think about that film, almost every single other character in that film is opposing Chief Brody in some way. Mm. Um, I mean, even even uh, his sidekicks on the boat, you know, they still, they still v- bicker and quarrel about the right way to do this. 
Uh, even his family is not fully for him. He's got the whole town against him. Oh, yeah, the mayor. The mayor is probably the, the main central secondary antagonist in that film. He's got this whole other agenda uh, that's just uh, that's wreaking havoc on, on the lives of our main characters and his family. Uh, so even though the Jaws is the main bad, or the shark is the main bad guy, we have to overcome. We've got the mayor character. We've got everyone else basically opposing our main character in this film. Yeah, that's interesting um, because I think um, so often uh, when we are early into our careers and story, when we're just starting out writing antagonistic characters, um, our our inclination is to say, okay. My protagonist wants this. This is his external goal. So the antagonist, it should be just the opposite, right? <laughs> yeah, that's but we what know we that's think, not true. Right. Right? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, what? Yeah, what? What would you say? I mean, we teach students that basically a protagonist and an antagonist should have the same goal. Yeah. Uh, we see this, you know, in, in stories, especially sports stories. Yeah. Very, very common. Uh, both teams want to win the championship. Both fighters want to win the fight. Um, why is it important, though, for... Or, or why can it be very helpful, should I say, for the protagonist and antagonist to have the same goal? What does that gain for us from a story perspective? Well, first of all, it just makes writing the story a whole lot easier <laughs> if you do that. Uh, but second of all, with without that element, if I've got one character who wants one thing and another character who wants the complete opposite of that thing, well, then technically both of them can get exactly what they want and everybody's happy. And they never even have to be in the same they room. They don't even have to be in the same room together. Um, so you, you, you've got to have your main character. That's in the sports stories, again, like you said, John, it's why it's, it, they're so easy to tell is because there's only one trophy. Only one person walks away with the trophy. So you want to think of your stories regardless of the genre, regardless of what you're doing. You want to think of it in that way. Uh, only one person gets to walk away with the prize, um, and, and they have to be going for the same prize. Well, it's probably also why romantic comedies work so well where we have a love triangle because right. only you know one person will walk away with the guy or only one person will walk away with the girl, you know, whoever yeah. is at the, the center of this love triangle. Um, you know, there can only be one victor if you will you know yeah. uh, actually and we've seen this in a lot of different stories um sometimes neither end up being the victor right, you know right. which is a whole different type of story yeah. uh to tell but usually in those type stories where neither ends up being the victor um then the two the protagonist antagonist kind of end up uniting a lot of times yeah i was going to say end. usually those are your your buddy stories yeah, you know right. which are structured just like romances they are so they are and yeah. in a romance film you've got two characters who are serving both as each other's protagonist and each other's antagonist yeah so yeah and in those structured films it's all about these people realizing they can't live without each other yeah, yeah. so yeah a lot of times what they were going for it's like eh, i guess that's not important as long as we're together yeah <laughs> why do you think it's so hard when we're developing antagonists not to develop these very cartoonish flat characters who are only driven by one you know pursuit i i almost think of them like a cookie monster right uh, you know we're all they <laughs> cookie 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 that's all they want you know is a is a cookie which is a very strong moral argument right exactly <laughs> that is i mean we all can relate to the fact that we all want a cookie. So I get it. I get it. But, you know, that that's a pretty flat character that only has one yeah. central motivation. So um, why do you think that happens? How do we get around that? 
Well, genre, again, has a lot to do with it. There are some genres where not only can you get away with having sort of a two-dimensional antagonist, it's almost required. Uh, for example, in a horror film, um, the bad guy in a horror film, they have nothing about uh, uh, the bad guy in a horror film do we resonate with or agree with typically. And, and, and I'm talking about your pure horror films. Um, you mean Freddy Krueger can't be this nuanced type <laughs> character that I have compassion for? And, he can be, but uh, if he is, you're not telling a pure horror film. <laughs> I, I've got this idea. I want to create the sensitive man's horror film. Wow. Good luck with yeah. that. Yeah. You, Jason, don't want, you don't want to offend anybody? No, Jason Voorhees is just misunderstood, y'all. Right, he's, right. He's got problems, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, in those kinds of genres, you can, you can not only get away with it, it's required. Um, oftentimes in the fantasy genre, you look at uh, Lord of the Rings, there's absolutely nothing about Sauron's character that we think, oh, you know what, I can kind of understand where he's coming from. <laughs> you know, he's just the pure, full embodiment of evil. Um, but those genres lend themselves to those kinds of stories. They're very much, I mean, horror films are about survival. You know, do you make it in the end or not? Do you get eaten or not? In fantasy films, they're very much about pure good against pure evil. Mm -hmm. And we can nuance those things a little bit, for the, but in those genres, we can get away with it. However, that doesn't work at all in drama. Mm -hmm. um, our, our, our moral arguments, uh, the, the, the things that our protagonist and our antagonist are, are um, espousing need to be things that we resonate with. Mm. Uh, and I would say if you were going to put the moral arguments of the protagonist and antagonist on spectrums according to genres in a horror film, they're going to be polar opposites. Mm. Or in fantasies, they're going to be on opposite extremes. But in a drama, they're probably going to be closer to each other in the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, they're both going to be kind of similar. Mm -hmm. And they're both, both arguments are going to make some sense. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the antagonist is just slightly more flawed than the, the main character's moral argument. And it's those nuanced, complex arguments that actually make sense to us. That's what makes, that's what makes drama. That's what makes audiences buy into the story. Um, you know, John, I know you've given the example a lot of times in class about, you know, if you've got a character who has to choose between, well, what is it you, you talk about <laughs> choosing between Be, being yeah. a, a crack dealer or a pastor? <laughs> right, right. We all know we should be a, a crack dealer. Of course, so. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> but yeah, when you, you when you make the, the decisions, the choices that the characters have to make, that polar opposite, when there's such an obvious wrong answer and such an obvious good answer, there's no drama or conflict in that and the the genre of drama it it relies on difficult questions mm -hmm. questions without easy answers um, it's the story of the of the kid who has to going his parents are going through a divorce and they have to choose whether to live with mom or dad it's what do you do that's there's no easy answer there and that's what fuels good drama you know, we talked about this film on a previous podcast, but um, I think it's just a super interesting film. And I'd be interested to get your take on uh, the film Inside Out. Yeah. Uh, we, we have, you know, our protagonist is joy. I would argue the antagonist is sadness. Um, but it's just like you were talking about with the drama. Those characters are, are very near the center. You know, there's not kind of the polar extremes. The and, Amy Poehler experience. <laughs> well, yeah. that was good. Um, but there, there's not, you know, the, uh, uh, the the far ends of the spectrum. And even sadness, most of the time, is not very confident in her 
moral argument, right. if, if you will. It's actually joy who comes to realize sadness's moral argument is is valid and yeah. worthy. And so I, I think it just speaks to the complexity of that film, actually, mm-hmm. that uh, you have an antagonist who they both want the same thing. Joy and sadness both want to be at the control board. Yeah. They both want to run the show. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, Joy's flawed moral argument is, no, I should be the only one yeah. at the board. Sadness should never be there. Yeah. Now, sadness doesn't feel like she should always be, yeah. you know, at the board. Um but she she definitely feels like she shouldn't be ostracized, yeah. you know, or banned. And her moral argument actually is more truthful Absolutely. than Joy's. Yeah. What's your take on it? I think you you hit the nail right on the head. And Inside Out is a buddy film. Yeah. That's 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 exactly what it is. You've got two. You got your protagonist and antagonist who are actually going on a journey together. And what happens at the end? They both realize they can't live without each other. Yeah. Uh, so it structurally does just what your your Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid does. It's 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 a buddy picture. Um, but uh, and so for that reason, you're right. Sadness is going to be Joy's antagonist in the story. But at times, Joy is going to be sadness's sadness's antagonist as well. Right. Um, so I, again, you know, I can't sing the praises enough of that particular film. But I think it's a, it's a beautifully nuanced film, and I think it's also a good example too, where sometimes. Uh, the antagonist is is sometimes even a more moral and ethical person than the main character. Mm. And that's one thing that we oftentimes, uh, a problem that we get into when we're talking about antagonists, is when we hear antagonist, that word, we immediately think villain. Mm. We think Darth Vader. We think of, you know, the sinister man with the tall black hat and the curly mustache, you know, who's tied the, you know, the damsel in distress to the train tracks. You know, that's that's the picture that we get in our head when we think of antagonist. Uh, but in stories, antagonist is just the person uh, who is the opposition to the main character. And so if your main character is an unethical person, then it's quite possible their opposition might be an ethical person. Um, so it's not necessarily about who's good or bad. It's just who's serving the role as the opposition in the film. Hmm. You know, I, I I think back to a, a lot of films, you know, that had an impact on me. Another film we've discussed previously on this podcast is Back to the Future, mm-hmm. um, where we... We have two characters. We have uh, Marty McFly, and then we have Biff, who you know I, I would argue is the antagonist Absolutely, of yeah. this film. And in some sense, they uh, they both want the same thing. They both want to control the destiny of the McFly family, right. um, and they both kind of want Lorraine, uh, but for different reasons. Right. You know, Biff right. wants her for romantic reasons. Marty wants her to to. Live stay alive. In, yeah, to stay alive. Yeah, to live out, you yeah. know, the rest of his life. Um, that is, you know, a bit more of a a flat uh, antagonist, you know, who we 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 don't really have any, you know, sympathy for. We delight in seeing him uh, crushed. Um, but there's a greater antagonistic force in that film than our central human antagonist and that is time absolutely yeah he's racing against time and his race against time is more compelling than actually his battle with biff he's smarter than biff he you know he can defeat biff but it's interesting to me that 
even though that that re, uh, relationship, you know, with Biff is not the most interesting uh, conflict to overcome in the story, it's still very necessary. If we didn't have that, Back to the Future would not be as compelling of a story as it is. If it's just about Marty getting back to the future, then that story is really only for Marty's selfish benefit. Yeah. But where Biff comes into play is now the story becomes more about the entire McFly family. Yeah. It becomes about his mother, his father, their futures. Yeah. And, and I think that that is, uh, again, a very complex way to deal with an antagonistic force. We need someone to embody the antagonism, but the antagonism that Biff embodies is really not, you know, time, right. uh, which is the key antagonistic well, force. And I think that what makes that film work so well is we establish our main character's brokenness, their internal struggle at the very beginning of the film with uh, Marty McFly not getting chosen to play the band you know, at the, at the high school prom coming up. But more importantly, what's the phrase that we hear uttered throughout that entire film? What are you, McFly? Chicken? Mm. And that, that plays into everything that Marty has to do. It played into what George had to do. And so what does Biff do? He serves as the thing that is constantly challenging the, the fear, uh, the, the timidity of, of the McFly family. And so he's a perfect antagonist to, to battle that internal problem of our main character. And then, of course, at the end, Marty learns that the whole idea of being chicken, it's more complex than that. It's mm. more interesting than that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I, I think um, you know that film is, is a real study in looking at how many different conflicts are being overcome yeah. in that story because um, there, there certainly is the central conflict of getting back to the future, but man, there's all these smaller conflicts. There's also this conflict, you know, that uh, that happens between Marty and Doc Brown, where Doc Brown doesn't want to know the future, and Marty is, you know, trying to. Uh, put notes in his pocket, you know, and all, and all this stuff to reveal to him. And there's conflict between those two characters, yeah, even. Absolutely. Um, in some sense, uh, I think Marty comes into conflict with every single character in that film. Yeah. His mother, who doesn't know it's her son and wants to sleep with him. <laughs> you know, his his father, who gets upset with him. Uh, it, it, you know, with uh, when they uh, uh, when he wants George to be more of a man and right. stand up uh, with Biff with Doc Brown, I, I think Marty comes into conflict with every single character there, and I think that can be a really helpful way absolutely to uh, to deal with um, the antagonistic force in your story. Yeah, don't just have the character come in conflict with the antagonist. Absolutely, I think another thing, John, is we're, we're talking about the film too that. That uh, to, to keep in mind and, and just a thought about Back to the Future. Well, not just Back to the Future, but all stories. That really, really all stories, well-told, well-structured stories, should have two endings. And, and, and the reason why is because your character is actually going on two journeys in a story. They're going on an external journey and an internal journey. Um, and so you got to wrap both of those stories up. And typically, your antagonist is really pressing in on the external story. That's typically how it works, like in a sports sports film and so on and so forth. But I would argue in Back to the Future, Biff is actually probably challenging the internal story much more than the external world. He gets in the way of the external world, but he has no knowledge of what's going on. He's not, he's not actively trying to defeat... 
uh, uh, Marty in his endeavors to to go back or to go forward in time. That's that's not at all what's going on. The role he really serves is George overcoming his fear. That's that's really the big role that he plays. He's much more George's antagonist, really, in a sense, than he is Marty's antagonist. It, well, for Marty, he's more of a roadblock. Hmm. Um, but the whole George and Lorraine and all of them, they are such a part of Marty, Marty's internal journey of... of Realizing who he is and and understanding the faults of his family and how you know his dad and even his mom to some degree they've all just been chickens you know and we just need to we need to stand up for ourselves. Um, so and I think that's why you know once we get to the the end the final scene with the DeLorean you know hitting the lightning rod and getting back in in time uh, it it just it by that point we don't care about Biff we just want to see this this final thing work. And I think why it all works is if you notice that film too, all those things are intercut with each other. It's all kind of happening at the same time. And so you've got both these storylines rushing to a conclusion intercut with each other. Mm-hmm. All right, question for you. Okay. Who's the antagonist in Inception? In Inception? Yeah. Well, I think with that film, uh, you know, I love the film Inception. I think it's a, a masterfully crafted film. Um, but. I don't know if there really is a strong central antagonist in that film. And and we have we definitely have antagonistic forces, you know, don't get me wrong. Um, the character of Maul, uh, who's Leonardo DiCaprio's wife in the film, she's definitely the, the most powerful antagonistic force in that film. Um, and she gets in the way and she causes problems and she, in, in some ways she does bring what little heart Inception has is <laughs> she brings the heart to the story. Um, but really, what is it the main character is trying to accomplish in that film? You know, the, the whole external goal is to plant an Inception mm-hmm. into the mind of Killian Murphy's character. And in a well-structured film, there should be another character who is trying to accomplish the same thing. That should have been a film, in, in, in my very humble opinion, about it should have been a race against time. It, it should have been about two characters and who plants the Inception first. They're the ones who emerge victoriously. And I think the reason the film ultimately pays off is there's plenty of environmental obstacles that have to be overcome. To implant that Inception is an incredibly difficult task and, and lots of problems that have to be solved in order to do it. But... Technically, I don't know if we have a fully fleshed out, defined antagonist in that film. And here's why I ask. I love Christopher Nolan. Sure. I think he's a master filmmaker. I agree. I think he's one of the best. I do too. But I think he struggles with antagonists. Hmm. Look at it. With the exception of The Dark Knight Rises, you know, yeah. the, 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 I, I think in the Batman films, which in some sense, you kind of have to pull those away from the yeah. rest of his yeah. work. But you look at um, all of his other films, um, even, you know, it would be easy to, uh, what's the one with the magicians? Uh, The Prestige. Yeah, The Prestige. It would be easy to say, well, yeah, there's a clear protagonist and a clear antagonist. Is there? Yeah. I'm I'm not sure. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you have these two guys kind of competing, but I'm not even sure, you know, that there's a clear, and and granted, I know that's based on a book and, you know, but still... I, I don't know. I feel like Christopher Nolan's one of those filmmakers who understands antagonistic force yeah, masterfully. I agree. But I don't know that he always knows how to embody it in people. 
Yeah, yeah, I I, I would probably agree. just lost half the listening audience right. of this podcast. <laughs> but I I I just I say that to say, you know, these are th- these are methods and elements to make your story stronger. These are not things you know we're talking about that's like, well, if you don't have it, then you're just going to be a failure. Yeah, Christopher Nolan, you know, there, there's only one Christopher Nolan, but I think he understands antagonistic force. But man, I I really think he struggles with. Uh, Antagonist, even in his most recent, you know, film. Um, again, is there a strong? You could, I guess, you could argue Matt Damon, maybe, but he mm. he's just, you know, yeah. in, a, in a small portion of the film. Really, he's not, you know, yeah, uh, a, a central key character throughout the whole film. So, um, I don't know. Am, am yeah. I alone no, no, in that? No, I, I think that there's a, there's a lot of credence to what you're saying, and and, and again, um, um, the prestige. I've always, you know, cited that as a film that I wish that I would have made. Yeah. So not saying that these these are, you know, no, bad I love films that at all. Film. I think it's it's actually probably my favorite of Nolan's films. Yeah. I absolutely love that movie. Um, so there are always exceptions, mm-hmm. and and I do think and I do think that Christopher Nolan is is good at breaking some of the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that and this this is a criticism of his that comes from a lot of different uh, yeah. critics is a lot of his films do tend to lack that sort of undefinable that I can't put my finger on at heart. Yeah. That that deeply human element that mm-hmm. we actually really resonate with. Yeah. Um, his films rely so much on. Um, uh, plot twists and, and yeah. structure methods mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing and and they tend to be a little weak in the character yeah. department and your antagonist is one of your most important characters. Well, I think even with Memento, you have probably the closest thing to a classic antagonist with Joe Pantoliano's yeah. uh, character there. But even then, if we're going to be really strict in our definition of antagonist, yeah. he's really not from a story perspective, a true, you know, antagonist. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I guess you could stretch it and say, well, they both want to control, uh, you know, Guy Pierce's knowledge of what really happened, you know, yeah. or what. You, you could probably make some yeah. stretch there, um, but it's probably the closest to yeah. a true classic antagonist in the Nolan films. I would agree, yeah. And and, and again, Nolan, um, we didn't mean for this to necessarily become a podcast about Christopher <laughs> Nolan, but he's- Who a, we love. We do, and he's a great filmmaker to, to, to look at. Uh, but Nolan does tell stories that are very much outside of the box. And he is the he is the the filmmaker that everybody wants to be. And that is, I can kind of tell whatever story I want, and Hollywood's going to give me the money to do it. He's He's a rarity. Um, and and I think that anytime you tell stories that that deviate from a lot of the things that we typically you know are used to in cinema or we've been used to in storytelling since the beginning of time, there are going to be consequences to that. It doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. Um, but Nolan tells a different type of story, and it does resonate with a lot of people. Um, but uh, I, I think that especially when you're first starting out, especially if you want if you want to have a career, if you want to be noticed, if you want to tell stories that deeply, deeply resonate with people, uh, you gotta learn how to how to tell these 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 types of stories, these basic types of stories. I hate using the word basic uh, because that seems to to dumb them down a little bit. But uh, basic storytelling has been used in in stories that we would consider very complex, um, and and 
And for whatever reason, may, I don't know if it has to do with this generation too, but I've, I've been very intrigued, John, especially with our current students and how difficult it is to get them to write antagonists. Mm. It's something that just is so often missing from stories. Mm. There's just not this driving force that, that you know, is, is working against the, the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think part of that, you know, goes back to, um, you know, our culture, which is a good thing, um, has really backed off on vilifying people <laughs> right, more right. than we used to. You yeah. know, we used to have a lot more clear system of kind of black and white. There's good yeah. people and bad people. And, um, you know, for our better, we, we've kind of adopted this idea that there everybody shades of gray. Yeah. Um, and, and that's... That's good for society, bad for storytelling. Right, right. Um, I, I think that, in some sense, is why we uh, have have really become fans of um, shows like Dexter. You know, where there's this very clear line is like, "Yeah, he's a bad guy, but I'll root for him." Right, you know? right. Um, and I, I think we long for clarity to know. Uh, most of us, even though we can accept, you know, that everybody shades of gray, I would say like here in the United States, we still need um, a bad guy. So we, we've went outside this country for yeah. the bad guy. And now, you know, everyone in the United States would say, well, ISIS, you know, in yeah. the Middle East is our biggest enemy, you know, and that's, uh, we, we, we've still found a bad guy right. somewhere in the world. Nobody... Yeah. Nobody in the United States argues about the um, uh, the moral complexity of ISIS to say, well, there's shades of gray, right, you right, know. Right. We uh, and I think it's telling because we we do need. There's a need within us to know there are people that are ultimate evil. There are people that have no redeeming qualities. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that it's that we've eliminated that from society. No. We've just broadened the spectrum, yeah. you know, and, and said those people still exist, but there's not as many of them as we thought there were. No, I think you're right, and and you know, not to to get too philosophical, but I think that from the beginning of time, we've needed bad guys. Yeah, we've always needed someone or something to vilify um, to our detriment. Right. Uh, we will if there if there isn't immediately a bad guy, we will create a bad guy. Um, you know the Salem witch hunts. I, you know, you, you you name it. You know, we have we've just we've got to have someone or something we're fighting against. Um, so I, I think in discussing antagonists, uh, this is a good discussion to have mm-hmm. because a good antagonist in a film should be nuanced and complex. Mm-hmm. You know, again, with those few exceptions of fantasy films, and again, fantasy film, you're talking about a story that takes place out of our current reality. So, right. you know, science fiction films, same thing. We can have an ultimate evil alien, yeah. you know. Uh, that can that can be metaphoric for different things, but it's just audiences will buy that. But in drama and those, you know, these these genres that are a little bit more close to home, even in even in comedies and romantic comedies, it's it's um it's more difficult yeah. to have an antagonist that's a caricature. Yeah, they've they've got to be nuanced. They have to be complex. They have to have some argument that we buy into. Yeah, I, I think one thing we've seen a lot in television, and you know, I I would be curious to see if you can think of examples of, of where this has occurred in film. Um, in television, we've started to see shows where the antagonist is the main character. Right, and, and I think. I think there's probably films where that you know has occurred, um, but I think that's that's a real interesting change you know in our 
cultural storytelling to see an antagonist who is the main character. Um, in some sense, uh, maybe at that point, uh, oftentimes they become the protagonist over the course, right. you know, of the story. I, I think about uh, storytellers like Paul Thomas Anderson and yeah. Quentin, Quentin Tarantino, guys like that who put, you know, these uh, killers, you know, yeah. and, and cult leaders and people, mm-hmm. you know, as the main characters of their story. Um, what was the Paul Thomas Anderson film with Philip Seymour Hoffman playing the uh, lead and uh, Joaquin? Phoenix, the master, the master, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So the the master, um, I I would argue that Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, the master, is the antagonist to mm-hmm. uh, Joaquin Phoenix's mm-hmm. protagonist. Uh, but the master, the antagonist, is kind of the main character yeah. of that story. Yeah. Um, the film's named after him. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> and it's similar to The Godfather. Yeah, exactly. You know, similar to all these other you know stories we've talked about. Um, but I, I don't know. I think that's, um, that is, we're seeing storytelling spin off in all sorts of different directions, you know, yeah. in the last couple of years. And I think TV is, you know, greatly to thank uh, yeah. for that. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that these tried and true, you know, timeless truths of story when it comes to how an antagonist functions, um, don't still apply it's sure. just they apply differently now completely and again going back to genre uh thinking about feature films that do some of the things you're talking about john first thing that comes to mind is westerns mm, you know yeah. which is just the quintessential american genre uh that that is an anti-hero genre it's always about the the lone guy who probably has had some pretty major run-ins with the law oftentimes wanted by the law but they come in and they save the day um, so this whole anti-hero um, idea, it, it really, I think, is part of the American mythos. It's part of what makes us who we are. We're very intrigued in, in, by these people who, as you said earlier, they fight the system. They think outside of the box. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's something that's very reflective in the work that we do. And, and, and so I'm not, I, I'm not opposed to it. Um, but, you know, one of the things you mentioned, too, you talked about uh, the master and then you mentioned the godfather is, you know, there are genres and types of films where your antagonist may be, um, well, I guess in a sense, one could argue that your antagonist is kind of a two-dimensional character. Mm-hmm. And all we mean by two-dimensional is they don't change. Mm-hmm. They're not going to change. That A two-dimensional character can be very complex. They can be a very interesting thing. And good stories need two-dimensional characters. Uh, the Godfather, he is just a force of nature. That is all he is. He's not going to change. He is just this power in the film. He's like the looming thunderstorm. There's nothing you can do about it. It's just there. Um, Sauron is kind of the same way. You know, you've got these characters. They, they stand no chance for change whatsoever, or they don't change. But they're a powerful, integral part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think that sometimes, and I don't know how this would work with the Master, but maybe more so with the Godfather, you know, when you have that, that huge, extreme, two-dimensional evil force in the film, there's probably, though, going to be some other character who is serving some kind of antagonistic um, role in the film as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even in Lord of the Rings, you've got so many different antagonistic forces in that film for all for for lots of different reasons that uh, that it had to be written that way. Um, yeah, and it, you know, the master might be um, uh, a Paul Thomas Anderson exception because I, I started thinking about some of his other films, like yeah. There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Uh, 
Daniel Plainview in that film, very similar to the character of the Master, the antagonist, and it could be argued as the main character. Yeah, he's the first yeah. character we see. He's you know he's clearly the antagonist, but he's clearly also the main character. So that may just be something uh, that Paul Thomas Anderson gets away with. That um, you know is is a more mature yeah. storytelling uh, choice, and it's more difficult you know to well, do. And I think that Paul Thomas Anderson, kind of like uh, Christopher Nolan as well, you know, he has found a niche. He yeah. has found something that he's very good at doing. Yeah. And um and 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 P. T. Anderson has this way of giving us kind of slice of life films. Yeah. That work yeah and, and and you know we haven't talked about in, in depth about slice of life films but you can kind of get away with that with short films but to sustain that over the course of an entire feature it's difficult to do yeah. and I would argue that that was one of the shortcomings of the master yeah is I don't know how many times in that story well I should say in that slice of life I kept I kept there was a part of me that kept longing for the but why why am I engaging this moment in time? Yeah. Um, yeah. Where's the story? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and maybe Wes Anderson Wes Anderson may be at the opposite end of the spectrum of the Paul Thomas Anderson because in all of his films, even characters that serve in an antagonistic role, I never hate those characters. Ever, I ever. always kind of love yeah. them, you yeah. know. And so there's always a clear protagonist. But I never really hate the antagonist. Right. I always kind of like them too. Yeah, you know. So I I think he may be kind of the opposite end of that spectrum. That uh, uh, again has found kind of a little niche that he can get away with. Yeah, that, uh, he does something very particular. You know, with the Wes Anderson example in particularly, one thing too one could argue is, but how much do you love? the protagonist yeah. necessarily. And, and yeah. all I mean by that is not necessarily that we don't like them, yeah. but I feel like oftentimes the protagonist and the antagonist in Wes Anderson films tend to be a little closer on the spectrum to each yeah. other than maybe other genres. Yeah. I, his characters, I love his main characters, but they're all so deeply flawed. Yeah. Well, Rushmore may be the one exception because yeah. while he's very, very deeply flawed, yeah. I did love absolutely, that character. absolutely, yes. But but you're right on the rest of them, and these are both you know Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson, both guys who typically or not typically, but have dealt with these big ensemble casts right. that take on a bit of a different story structure Completely, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That sometime we'll do a podcast on story structures for ensemble casts, which is a whole different kettle of fish, but. I do think that uh, Wes Anderson, uh, when he does have, you know, antagonists in yeah. his film, they're sort of lovable. Absolutely. <laughs> I would agree for sure. <laughs> and maybe, you know, maybe that's, uh, you know, something to do with the the actors he gets to play those characters. You, yeah. you know, your, your Gene Hackmans and your right. uh, Bill Murrays and guys like that. Hey, when are you not going to love those right. guys? Right, exactly. Know? So yeah. maybe that's uh, that's part of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, the one last thing I would love to talk about before uh, we conclude this episode on the antagonist, and th this is something we could come back and revisit, you know, several times, I feel like, is, okay, I've got this story, and I've got this clear protagonist, and I've got this clear antagonist. How do I have the protagonist defeat the antagonist in such a way that it's very clear the protagonist has won? But in our modern day culture and time, um, 
it seems like the ultimate protagonist would also have a little sympathy for the antagonist. Like, I, do we still root for a protagonist who kind of puts his foot on the neck of the antagonist at the end? This was a, I, I don't know if you remember, this was a really common uh, critique of uh, that Superman film that yeah. came out yeah. uh, not that long ago because people um, said, Superman doesn't uh, kill people. He doesn't let yeah. people die. Um and I think that speaks to protagonists larger than just the Superman stories. Yeah. Is we, we kind of have this, when we're talking about, you know, protagonists defeating this grand, grand evil, um, we need to somehow feel good. You know, when everybody's all these shades of gray, how does one win and, and keep up with kind of the moral argument of the zeitgeist of the age, if yeah, you will. Yeah. Um, I think that's getting harder and harder for writers. I think it is getting harder and harder for writers as well, John. I, I think that this is a, a good example. I, I've brought this up a lot during this podcast, but just going back to genre again, I think this is one of the, the beauties of genre. Genre actually gives us the opportunity to explore things that we may not be able to explore yeah. in our real life. And I would argue that even though I am I am all in support of compassion mm-hmm. and and even a protagonist at the end understanding the moral argument of the of the bad guy and and realizing where all that came from and showing some compassion. I get that and I like that, but I would still argue that we as a society still at times have a need for ultimate defeat of bad guy. Mm. We want to see mm-hmm. it. And I think this is where we this is where those kinds of um, um, cathartic experiences play out in your different types of genres, in your horror films, in your fantasy films, in your sci-fi films. You know, this is where we can just no, we can just we can just see good guy taking out ISIS, you know, mm-hmm. for for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, if, if we're honest, when we see that kind of evil in the world, that extreme evil, which we see less and less of, um, not that it isn't there, but it's, it's more uh, hidden. Uh, so when, when those big evils do come up, like ISIS or, or whatever it is, there is that part of us that wants to see ultimate victory. Mm-hmm. We want to see the ultimate defeat. So I think it's still a necessary and important part to have in storytelling. Uh, but in, in dramas, you know, how you play that out... Um, you know, I think a lot of that's going to go back to, well, what is the very specific internal struggle of the main character that you're dealing with? Uh, and how does that play into how they would respond and react to this person? What kind of character have you created from the very beginning? Um, you know, typically in films, if antagonists and protagonists end up reconciling at the end of the film, um, when that happens, almost always there, with the exception of maybe buddy films, but but usually when the you're, you have a true good guy and a true bad guy, when they reconcile at the end, it's almost always they come together to defeat an even bigger evil. Mm. Um, and so if you're going to have that kind of situation where good guy and bad guy kind of come to terms with each other, it's often to serve an even bigger story problem. Maybe that's why we're also seeing stories where the antagonist is the main character, because if if that main character, that antagonist, ends up driving themselves off the cliff, like yeah. in a Walter White yeah. situation, if, if they end up, you know, going to their doom or yeah. whatever because of these decisions they've made, well, we can kind of get on board with that. It's right. like, well, they, you know, they made choices, they drove themselves to their doom. So maybe actually 
um, these feelings in the culture are what are pushing storytelling and especially how the antagonist is treated in storytelling uh, towards these new forms of, not necessarily new forms, but uh, towards returns to yeah. antiheroes yeah. and in seeing antiheroes self-destruct. Uh, maybe that, you know, is As opposed to the to self-destruction, the destruction being imposed by another character. Right. We're too compassionate right. for that now, apparently. <laughs> right. So yeah, I guess that 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 you, I think one could make an argument for that. Yeah. So we can't do that, but we still need these stories of of evil being defeated in a sense. Yeah. And maybe we do that by just like you said, having a, a a character metaphorically drive themselves off a cliff. So keep defeating evil. <laughs> keep writing great bad guys, and most of all, just keep telling stories. This is the Inside Out Story Podcast. For more information on the story, the host of the show, upcoming speaking engagements and seminars, visit our website at theinsideoutstory.com. The Inside Out Story Podcast is a production of Sideshow Media Group.